chapter 1 this morning. We're continuing in our series of the prophets of Elijah and Elijah. And so if you want to turn there, it's page 307 in the blue, hello, blue, pew Bibles, say that fast, in front of you, 307. Um, and as you turn there, uh, I want to turn your mind back to kind of where we've been. There, there are a couple things before we read this passage that I want you to hear. One is the question that is the overarching question in this passage today. And that is, uh, does God actually take idolatry seriously? Does he actually take it seriously? So as you're turning there, I want you to listen. There, there is some background to this portion of Second Kings as we start this book. If you go all the way back to the book of Samuel, when the people of God were wanting something other than God to be their God, they said, we want a king like the other nations have. And what God says at that point, he says this, Samuel, it's not you that they've rejected, it's me. And that echoes forward into the books of the kings. The other thing you need to keep in mind is the passage that was preached. And you may not have been here, but a few weeks ago, it was 1 Kings 18, where it was the contest between who is the real God? Is it Baal or is it the God of the Bible? And the answer came by who is the God who produced fire? That plays into what you'll hear today. And there's also the contrast of what you heard last week if you were here. And that is that King Ahab, he seemed to repent at the end of his life and received some reprieve and mercy. But the tone of this passage is a very different tone. So let's give ear to God's word. I'm actually going to start so you can understand in the last chapter of 1 Kings write a few verses before, and I, I, I trust the Word of God as the Word of God, but I'm going to give just a little commentary as I read to help us. So this is what it says. Back there in verse 51 of the last chapter of 1 Kings, it says, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the way of his father, that was Ahab, and in the way of his mother, that was Jezebel. And in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And that was the first king who led right, the people of God into deep idolatry. He served Baal and worshipped him. And provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. Now look up for one second. What that just said was, Ahaziah was decidedly committed to another God. Provoking God to anger and leading the people into that idolatry. And so now we start Second Kings. So after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and he lay sick. And so he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron. Now that is a Philistine god and its name is literally the God of the flies. And that should hearken your mind from the Bible to the whole Exodus thing. This passage is filled with this opposition, this competition between other gods and the God of the Bible. Who is the real God? 
And who should we follow? Okay. So he says, go inquire of Baals above the God of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. Verse three. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baals above the God of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And so Elijah went. And this interlude means that, right, it says the messengers return to the king. So what you miss is the interchange between Elijah and the messengers. Elijah goes and he, he gives the message. And rather than going on to Philistia to see what the God of Ekron is, they turn right around and they listen to Elijah and go back to the king. So verse 5, the messengers return to the king and he says to them, why have you returned? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you're sending to inquire of Baals above the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, and you should hear the anger in his voice as he says this, right? It is that Elijah the Tishbite. Okay. And then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. Okay, guys, this is not a welcoming party. This is not a royal escort. This is a group, a platoon of 50 soldiers with a captain doing the business of what soldiers do. Okay. So he sends a captain of 50 with his men. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of the hill and said to him, Oh, man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50. If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. Guys, does Ahaziah regard life? And the third captain of 50 went up in verse 13, and he fell on his knees and came before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, Fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him and do not be afraid of him. So he arose, went down with him to the king and said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baals above the God of Ekron. Is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed. To which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And so he died. According to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. 
Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, by the way, which were evil and committed to idolatry, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless his word. Okay. Lord, I fear this passage. But be gracious to us and help us to hear the truth of your word and to show us Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I've worked really hard on this. (laughs) And this is a technical thing that I need you to see. It's very complicated, so pay attention, okay? This is the take-home message of this passage. God takes idolatry seriously. God detests idolatry so much, He takes it so seriously that He is, one, willing to judge it, and two, willing to protect His people from it. He is willing to judge it. He takes committed idolatry and worship of someone other than Him so seriously That he is actually willing to judge it. Now look. He takes false worship. Or worshiping something other than him. So seriously. He's willing to judge it. That comes from two places in this text. You see it in the life of Ahaziah himself. But you see it in the interchange. Right? With Elijah and the prophets. First. Ahaziah has taken his stand on where his loyalty. And his worship. And his service. Lies. Lay. English majors. Okay, it is with Baal's above Ekron. It is with this other God. He is committed to it. Even in the hour of his death, he falls through a lattice in his upper chamber. I don't know how, but it seems to be a fairly fall, fall, far fall and a fairly right injurious fall. Even in the hour of his death, he does not turn his heart to the God who has been revealed to him. The God, which is Yahweh, right? In in pondering his fate, right, will I get up from his bed? Rather than show the wisdom and seek the face of God, he turns to the God that he has committed his heart to. My old seminary professor said it this way. He said his appeal to Baal was not a knee-jerk reaction in a sudden emergency. Baal has always been Ahaziah's deity of choice. He has had no place for Yahweh. His idolatry was due to preference, not ignorance or weakness. And that's the reason for the question that gets asked three times to him. Twice in his presence and once simply to the presence of Elijah. Is it because there is no God in Israel? That's rhetorical. The answer, there is a God in Israel. And Ahaziah does not have value for God or worship of God. He does not think that God's of value or adequate or real or present or able to do anything or worth his time. And the end of the life of Ahaziah because of his commitment is that the word of God comes true. He dies. You see the judgment of God on the life of Ahaziah in spades. Does God take idolatry seriously? He does. 
You also see it in the life of the 50 men, which is such a puzzling passage in some ways, but not. Now listen, in our day, when we see news coverage of seemingly innocent people kneeling in orange jumpsuits on beaches, being murdered, it can make us think that any mass form of loss of human life is somehow gratuitous and evil. This is a different situation. These men are not guiltless bystanders. These are Ahaziah's men. They were like him. They share his God. We can assume that his God was theirs. They're not a welcoming party. They're a hit squad. And their presence is in right direct competition with the authority of God. And you can hear it in their voice. Because the captain comes up in his hubris and his arrogance to Ahaziah on the hill. And you can hear him say, O man of God, let me tell you who the real authority is, who the real king is. The king says, get your tail down the hill because he's the real authority. And their words betray their hearts. They're pitting the authority of God, which they don't regard against the authority of Ahaziah, which they do. And the function and the form of the intervention of God at this point has its roots back in 1 Kings 18. Will the real God please stand up? See, if, if Elijah's request was immoral, God would not have answered. This isn't what Elijah did. The second time you hear the thing say that the fire of God actually came down from heaven. Two times Fire from the real God comes down and consumes 102 people in judgment against false worship. Does God take idolatry, committed idolatry seriously? See, the language also that I want you to remember that you hear three times is this thing. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you go inquire? But because you have committed yourself to this way, you will not come down from the bed, but you will surely die. In Hebrew, it says, you will not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you will die, die. Does that ring a bell? If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, God back in the garden looked at Adam and Eve and all of his kindness and all of the goodness they provided. And he said, because I love you, I am telling you, do not rebel and eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Because of the day that you eat of it, you will die, die. Idolatry and casting off God and seeking another one is costly. God cares so much. He takes false worship and other gods so seriously that he is committed to judge it. The New Testament is the same thing. The wages of sin and death is death, the New Testament says in Romans. God stands against false worship. God's wrath and anger and judgment on sin like this seems startling to us, doesn't it? It's very uncomfortable culturally. Isn't it? I was listening to Fresh Air this last week, this NPR series. 
And Terry Gross is the interviewer, and she's been doing Fresh Air for years. She is a brilliant interviewer. She is brilliant. Okay, she was interviewing, and it aired Wednesday, Bruce Springsteen, who was one of my childhood heroes of rock and roll. Right, I'm from Philly. He's from Jersey. We are knit together in the soul, and we're actually not that far apart in age. Okay? And... She talks to him about how, like, in his early days, his music had this dark, like, judging. And she says, I mean, I know you grew up around the Roman Catholic Church. And, you know, you heard all those silly stories, basically, about God being angry. And he's like, yeah, I mean, I really actually did. The Catholic Church was around my house. I was there all the time. I, I, heard, about, I heard about the glory of God. I heard about the, the, the problem of sin. I heard about God's punishment. I heard about hell. And Terry Gross kind of comes in and she says, like, assuming we're all with her, right? I mean, now that you've kind of grown up and you realize all that stuff is just silly, has your music changed? And she laughs as if the idea of the judgment of God is absurd. Like, it's absurd. Like, who in the, like now that you know better, <laughs> right? Well, what's interesting is his response. His response is that he kind of laughs, but it's not the same laugh. He kind of says... Yeah, that stuff still kind of affects me. Now, the reason I bring that up is because everywhere you go, the idea of a God who is judging or the idea of there actually being eternal punishment is seen as the absolute most absurd thing you could say. But the reason I tell you that is this. There's a Russian philosopher by the name of Miroslav Volf. He's a writer. And he takes a crack at this idea of why we think that way. And he says, it's actually only Westerners who think that the idea of a God who is judging is an absurdity. He says, because, now he's not being mean, he's just trying to be kind of like sociologically astute and aware. He says, because you have grown up in like American suburban places where there is relative personal safety and assume that justice actually exists, that that has created this opportunity for what he calls expressive individualism. In other words, we live in a place where everyone is just kind of free to do whatever they want. And we believe that as long as like we just do it in the privacy of our own home or we're not really bothering anybody and it doesn't really affect anybody because we're isolated little capsules, then no one should judge. And if no one else should judge, then God shouldn't. It's absurd to think that God should ever judge. But he says, actually, for him who grew up under deep oppression in Russia, the only God that actually is sane is a God who will take vengeance, a God who will actually judge. Why? Because he saw his family members and his friends drug off and murdered under Russian oppression. And there was no safety and there was no course to vengeance and there was nothing he can do. And there is absolutely no justice. And there are millions and billions of people who live in this world whose life is not one of where they can get justice. And the only recourse that makes sense to them is actually a God who in the end will be a just and judging God. The God who is only loving and never judges is just as absurd to them as the God who to you might be a God who would ever judge. And the reason I say that is because maybe the God of the Bible who is both loving and judging, is worth your consideration. Maybe the God of Second Kings is worth your worship. God takes 
idolatry, false worship, the worshiping of God so seriously that he's actually willing to judge it. But it might be fair to you to say this. Well, look, there's a prophet sitting on a hill. There seems to be this one-to-one corollary, right? Ahaziah's sin, Elijah's prophecy, bam. Well, I don't see prophets sitting on hills, you know, making these statements. That's fair. Maybe there's not a one-to-one corollary, but there is the word of God that says God judges all those who will convincingly turn their hearts away from him. Now, look, I need to be really careful. But might it not be that you actually see judgment on that kind of false worship when people turn their hearts and their lives that direction in a subtle way? Because this is what I'm not saying. We are never saying that like you were mean to your wife, that's why you got cancer. That's not what we're saying. But Romans 1 actually says that the wrath of God is actually presently being revealed against all kinds of unrighteousness when God removes his hand from people and lets them go and love the idols that they would serve. Aren't there examples of that? The husband or the wife who, out of just saying, I don't care what God says, My happiness and my fulfillment is the thing who goes and wrecks their home and runs off with another person and splits their marriage. And their children end up hating them, even though all the adult friends around them are saying, you should be happy for your mom and dad because they're happy, but their lives are wrecked and ruined. I will tell you, there are a thousand ways in which the judgment of God against false worship and idolatry is seen. And if not in this life, I have to say it. The next. Right? You may go, people may go their whole life and their lives seemingly be without flaw and fun and good. But you have to hear that Jesus says he did not come the first time to condemn. He actually came to redeem and save. But he is coming back and he's coming back to judge. And Hebrews 9 actually says that it has been ordained for man once to live and to die and then to face judgment. God takes false worship so seriously. And I would just look at you and beg you and please, not because I'm kinder than God. I would just look and say, please do not live a life of hardness of heart that turns away from God like that. Please. Ahaziah and his life and his death should be a warning good Signpost to you. God takes idolatry so seriously that he's willing to judge it. Secondly, and more briefly, and even more hopefully, that God takes idolatry so seriously that he's willing to protect his people from it. Okay? And I'm going to go very fast, but you see it in a few places in this chapter. First, you just see it in the physical way in which he protects the life of his prophet. Right? He is sitting exposed on the top of a hill. And these men come up to kill him. 
And as one of God's people and his servants and one of the normal believers, in some ways, Elijah is just like you and me. God protects the life of the prophet through the idolatrous anger of Ahaziah and his men. Elijah lives. The second way you see it is the response of the third captain. And it's so good that you've got to say it for just a second. Imagine, right, that you're the third captain and you're sitting in the barracks and you're watching the news on TV. And you have seen the first guys lose their lives. And you think that was bad. And you see the second group go. And these are probably your friends. See, I don't think this third captain was that different from the others at the beginning of this. He was just as idolatrous and just the same as the others. He saw the judgment of God and he went up the hill and he was humbled. And in the face of the judgment of God that he has visibly seen, he is humbled and afraid and he pleads for mercy. And look, God's response is always kindness in the face of humility. And some people may say, look, I don't want to have to serve a God that I have to fear. And fear is not the only motivation, right, to turn to God. But I will tell you, in this instance, it wasn't a bad motivation. Was it? And I'm not even trying to be funny. It it wasn't a bad motivation. In fear, the man went up the hill. And in fear, turning to God for mercy, he walked down alive. And the others did not. But it's the third way that you see God's kindness to protect his people from idolatry. What is behind this? See, in part, God is concerned for the glory of his name, but he's concerned for the glory of his name because he's concerned for his people who bear his name. And he knows what idolatry does to his people. Ahaziah was committed to not just serving a false God himself. He was committed to leading people astray. And that's what every idol does. Idols ruin and idols wreck and idols destroy and false kings and false gods promise you life, but they steal it. And God is so concerned about the creation and the human beings that he's made that bear his image and bear his name that he is willing to go to great lengths to protect them from the idolatry that would destroy them. Which is what he does with Ahaziah. The judgment of Ahaziah is actually for the benefit of the people. See, Ahaziah was the king, the king that the people wanted. And in God judging Ahaziah as the king, he removes that idolatrous influence from their lives. God is willing to get rid of a terrible king. He's willing to come against a terrible God, a false God, that he might protect the life and the health of the people he loves. Like, doesn't that make sense to us? I was watching a news uh, footage a few months ago, and there was this footage of a man who steps into a laundromat to try to kidnap, snatch a kid. And it's kind of grainy footage from insecurity footage from inside the laundromat. And this man steps in off the street and tries to grab this little child and the mother, right? Because she loves her kid goes bazonkers, okay? Like she picks up her purse 
And I mean, she just starts beating the daylights out of this dude who is so confused that he flees. Now, why did that mother do that? She is bound to determine to protect that child she loves. And God takes idolatry so seriously that he's willing to protect the children he loves, right? And turn away those other kings and those other idols from their hearts. Ahaziah is not a good king. He is only wanting to hurt his people. He represents the heart of people that only wants another king. The chapter ends soberly. Ahaziah dies, right? But the death of a bad king and a false idol is actually unto the health and the goodness and the life of the people of God. You see, look, let me propose to you that every other God promises you life, but will only give you death. And Jesus, as the true God, is the one who desires for your life to be whole and full and flourishing and good and wholesome and fulfilled and satisfied. And God, he will war against the idols of our hearts because he wants to protect his children. But you might be thinking, and I'll end. You might be thinking, look, if Ahaziah is judged, why not me? Right? The question that comes up in the text again and again is this. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you have gone looking somewhere else? Can't you relate to that question? I feel like my own heart is so turned at times by idols. It's so tempted at times by false gods. But Jesus is a better king. He has come to turn your heart in such a way that he will make you love that which will give you life. And he's a better king in this way. He is not just the king who judges idols, but he is the good king who himself is judged for your idolatry and mine. Because he is so desirous of your heart to flourish. And because he is so full of his love and his kindness for his people. He himself has stepped into the judgment. That our idolatry which turns our hearts so often. Right? He has gone to the place of judgment. Listen. Oftentimes in, when our lives seem troubling. And we want to turn to every other thing. When I want to turn to my anger, when I want to turn to bourbon, when you want to turn to solitude, when you want to turn to self-absorption, when you, right, when you want to turn to all the things that grasp your heart. God speaks the good word of peace to you and I in this. He knows our idolatry. And he is the one who went to the cross to seek Right, the judgment that even our idolatry observes. Listen, in that silence, when we are tempted to say, is there no God in Israel? I want you to see how much it is that God seriously takes idolatry to protect you from it. Because Jesus himself on the cross says this, in essence, is there no God in Israel? You know those words? My God, my God, where in the are you? Why in the world 
Is Jesus the only one where the answer comes back? I am not here and I am not for you and I will not turn my heart to you. It is because God intends to accomplish something beautiful. Both mercy for you and grace and goodness and power for you. So that when you and I are tempted to look and say, is there no God in Israel? We see the beauty of a God who both judges, but becomes himself the judgment for our hearts. God takes idolatry. He just takes it so seriously. He will judge it, but in his grace and his mercy... He will protect you and me through it, through the covering of the goodness of the blood of Jesus. Christians, right, you here this morning find refuge in Jesus. If that's not you, please find refuge in the goodness and the kindness of a God who would take false worship so seriously that he would go and give himself to turn your heart to his loving kindness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a better king. Thank you that you are the one true and good king who loves us. Thank you that you are an honest king who comes bearing the wrath of God because you and our Father in heaven love so deeply and take this so seriously that you have created a way to turn our hearts to that which is good through the love that is Christ. Turn us there, O God, today. Turn us there. Turn our hearts to the one true God who is for our good, we pray. Because we pray in Jesus' name, amen.